PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. And now, your host, Donovan Stutel. Welcome to PTJ's Audio Abstracts for Volume 89, January 2009. This month's research reports focus on motor control exercise for persistent nonspecific low back pain, posterior tibial tendon dysfunction, continuing education and treatment of neck pain, early progressive eccentric exercise after ACL reconstruction, stepping responses in myelomeningocele, and predicting activity limitations in chronic stroke. This issue also features a case report on low back pain and the WHO-ICF model, and a perspective on use of mixed methods design in physical therapy research. For clinical summaries, invited commentaries, and e-letters to the editor, visit www.ptjournal.org. First this month, Motor Control Exercise for Persistent Nonspecific Low Back Pain, a Systematic Review, by Luciana Macedo, Dr. Christopher Marr, Dr. Jane Latimer, and Dr. James McCauley. This abstract is presented by Dave Corvoisier. Previous systematic reviews have concluded that the effectiveness of motor control exercise for persistent low back pain has not been clearly established. The objective of this study was to systematically review randomized controlled trials evaluating the effectiveness of motor control exercises for persistent low back pain. Electronic databases were searched to June 2008. Pain, disability, and quality of life outcomes were extracted and converted to a common 0 to 100 scale. Where possible, trials were pooled using Revman 4.2 software. Fourteen trials were included. Seven trials compared motor control exercise with minimal intervention or evaluated it as a supplement to another treatment. Four trials compared motor control exercise with manual therapy. Five trials compared motor control exercise with another form of exercise, and one trial compared motor control exercise with lumbar fusion surgery. The pooling revealed that motor control exercise was better than minimal intervention in reducing pain at short-term, intermediate, and long-term follow-ups, and that motor control exercise was better than minimal intervention in reducing disability at long-term follow-up. Motor control exercise was better than manual therapy for pain, disability, and quality of life outcomes at intermediate follow-up. Motor control exercise was better than other forms of exercise in reducing disability at short-term follow-up. Motor control exercise is superior to minimal intervention and confers benefit when added to another therapy for pain at all time points and for disability at long-term follow-up. Motor control exercise is not more effective than manual therapy or other forms of exercise. Lead author Luciana Macedo is a Ph.D. student at the George Institute for International Health 
at the University of Sydney in Sydney, New South Wales, Australia. Next, non-surgical management of posterior tibial tendon dysfunction with orthoses and resistive exercise, a randomized controlled trial. By Dr. Cornelia Kulig, Dr. Stephen Reichel, Dr. Amy Pomrantz, Dr. Judith Burnfield, Dr. Susan Meis-Requejo, Dr. David Thordarson, and Dr. Ronald Smith. Tibialis posterior tendinopathy can lead to debilitating dysfunction. This study examined the effectiveness of orthoses and resistance exercise in the early management of tibialis posterior tendinopathy. 36 adults with stage 1 or stage 2 tibialis posterior tendinopathy participated in this study. Participants were randomly assigned to one of three groups. The O group completed a 12-week program of orthoses wear and stretching. The OC group completed a 12-week program of orthoses wear, stretching, and concentric progressive resistive exercise. The OE group completed a 12-week program of orthoses wear, stretching, and eccentric progressive resistive exercise. The researchers collected pre-intervention and post-intervention data, including foot functional index scores, distance traveled in the five-minute walk test, and pain immediately after the five-minute walk test. Foot functional index scores, total score, and pain and disability subcategory scores decreased in all groups after the intervention. The OE group demonstrated the most improvement in each subcategory, and the O group demonstrated the least improvement. Pain, immediately after the five-minute walk test, was significantly reduced across all groups after the intervention. People with early stages of tibialis posterior tendinopathy benefited from a program of orthoses wear and stretching. Eccentric and concentric progressive resistive exercises further reduced pain and improved perceptions of function. Lead author Dr. Cornelia Kulig is Associate Professor of Clinical Physical Therapy in the Division of Biokinesiology and Physical Therapy at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, California. Next, does continuing education improve physical therapists' effectiveness in treating neck pain, a randomized clinical trial? By Dr. Joshua Cleland, Dr. Julie Fritz, Dr. Gerard Brennan, and Dr. Jake Magel. Physical therapists often attend continuing education courses to improve their overall clinical performance and patient outcomes. However, evidence suggests that continuing education courses may not improve the outcomes for patients receiving physical therapy for the management of neck pain. The purpose of this study was to investigate the effectiveness of an ongoing educational intervention for improving the outcomes for patients with neck pain. The study participants were 19 physical therapists from 11 clinics who attended a two-day continuing education course focusing on the management of neck pain. All patients treated by the therapists in this study completed the Neck Disability Index and a pain rating scale at both the initial examination and their final visit. After the continuing education course, the therapists were randomly assigned to receive either ongoing education consisting of small group sessions and an educational outreach session, or no further education. 
clinical outcomes achieved by therapists who received ongoing education and therapists who did not receive further education were compared for both pre-training and post-training periods. The effects of receiving ongoing education were examined by use of linear mixed model analyses with time period and group as fixed factors, improvements in disability and pain as dependent variables, and age, sex, and the patient's initial neck disability index and pain rating scores as covariates. Patients treated by therapists who received ongoing education experienced significantly greater reductions in disability during the study period than those treated by therapists who did not receive ongoing training. Changes in pain did not differ for patients treated by the two groups of therapists during the study period. Therapists in the ongoing education group also used fewer visits during the post-training period. The results of this study demonstrated that ongoing education for the management of neck pain was beneficial in reducing disability for patients with neck pain while reducing the number of physical therapy visits. However, changes in pain did not differ for patients treated by the two groups of therapists. Although it appears that a typical continuing education course does not improve the overall outcomes for patients treated by therapists attending that course, more research is needed to evaluate other educational strategies to determine the most clinically effective and cost-effective interventions. Lead author Dr. Joshua Cleland is Associate Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at Franklin Pierce University in Concord, New Hampshire, Physical Therapist in Rehabilitation Services at Concord Hospital in Concord, New Hampshire, and Faculty at the Regis University Manual Therapy Fellowship Program in Denver, Colorado. Effects of Early Progressive Eccentric Exercise on Muscle Size and Function After Anterior Cruciate Ligament Reconstruction, a one-year follow-up study of a randomized clinical trial by Dr. J. Perry Gerber, Dr. Robin Marcus, Dr. Leland Dibble, Dr. Patrick Grice, Dr. Robert Burks, and Dr. Paul Lesteo. The authors previously reported that focused eccentric resistance training during the first 15 weeks following anterior cruciate ligament reconstruction induced greater short-term increases in muscle volume, strength, and measures of function relative to standard rehabilitation. The purpose of this study was to evaluate the effects of early progressive eccentric exercise on muscle volume and function at one year after ACL reconstruction. Forty patients who had undergone an ACL reconstruction were randomly assigned to one of two groups. Twenty were assigned to a group that received early progressive eccentric exercise, and twenty were assigned to a group that received standard rehabilitation. Seventeen participants in the eccentric exercise group and fifteen participants in the standard rehabilitation group completed a one-year follow-up. Magnetic resonance images of the thighs were acquired one year after ACL reconstruction and compared with images acquired three weeks after surgery. Likewise, routine knee examinations, self-report assessments, and strength and functional testing were completed one year after surgery and compared with previous evaluations. A two-factor analysis of variance for repeated measures was used to analyze the data. 
Compared with the standard rehabilitation group, the eccentric exercise group had significantly greater improvements in quadriceps femoris and gluteus maximus muscle volume in the involved lower extremity from three weeks to one year following ACL reconstruction. In the eccentric exercise group, quadriceps femoris and gluteus maximus muscle volume improved 23 and 21 percent, respectively. In the standard rehabilitation group, quadriceps femoris and gluteus maximus muscle volume improved 13 and 12 percent, respectively. Improvements in quadriceps femoris muscle strength and hopping distance also were significantly greater in the eccentric exercise group one year post-surgery. At one year following ACL reconstruction, a 12-week focused eccentric resistance training program implemented three weeks after surgery resulted in greater increases in quadriceps femoris and gluteus maximus muscle volume and function compared with standard rehabilitation. Lead author Dr. J. Perry Gerber is director of the U.S. Military Baylor University Postgraduate Sports Medicine Residency Program at the U.S. Military Academy, Keller Army Community Hospital in West Point, New York. Next, stepping responses of infants with myelomeningocele when supported on a motorized treadmill by Dr. Carolyn Tulier, Dr. Beth Smith, Dr. Masayoshi Kubo, Dr. Chia Lin Chang, Dr. Victoria Merchan, Dr. Karen Morasco, and Dr. Beverly Ulrich. Infants with myeloma meningocele have difficulty with and show delays in acquiring functional skills, such as walking. This study examined whether infants with myelomeningocele will respond to treadmill practice by producing stepping patterns or at least motor activity during the first year after birth. In addition to analyze the characteristics of the development of stepping patterns in infants with myelomeningocele early in life, this study also compared the stepping trajectories of infants with myelomeningocele across age with those of infants with typical development. 12 infants with myelomeningocele and 12 infants with typical development participated in the study. The infants were tested on a treadmill at 1, 3, 6, 9, and 12 months of age with no treadmill practice between test sessions. Infants were supported on the treadmill for 12 20-second trials. A digital camera and behavior coding were used to determine step rate, interlimb stepping patterns, step parameters, and motor activity level. Treadmill practice elicited steps in infants with myelomeningocele, but less so than in infants with typical development. Responsiveness was affected by lesion level, but varied markedly among infants. Interlimb stepping was less readily alternating, but step parameters were similar to those produced by their peers with typical development. Finally, Holding infants with myelomeningocele on a moving treadmill resulted in greater motor activity than holding the infants on a non-moving treadmill. Infants with myelomeningocele responded to the treadmill by stepping, but less so than infants with typical development. The infants with myelomeningocele showed increased motor activity, but they demonstrated a different developmental trajectory. Future studies are needed to explore the impact of enhancing sensory input during treadmill practice to optimize responses in infants with myelomeningocele. Lead author Dr. Carolyn Toulier is a postdoctoral fellow in the Developmental Neuromotor Control Laboratory in the Division of Kinesiology at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan. 
Next, lower extremity strength differences predict activity limitations in people with chronic stroke by Dr. Patricia Kluding and Dr. Byron Gajewski. Body system impairments following stroke have a complex relationship with functional activities. Although gait and balance deficits are well documented in people after stroke, the overlapping influence of body impairments makes it difficult to prioritize interventions. This study examined the relationship between prospectively selected measures of body function and structure, including body mass index, muscle strength, sensation, and cognition, and activity, such as gait speed, gait endurance, and functional balance in people with chronic stroke. This was a cross-sectional observational study. 26 individuals with a mean age of 58 years and a mean time after stroke of 45 months participated. Four variables, body mass index, muscle strength difference between the lower extremities, sensation difference between the lower extremities, and mini mental status exam score were entered into linear regression models for gait speed, six-minute walk test distance, and Berg balance scale score. Lower extremity strength difference was a significant individual predictor for gait speed, gait endurance, and functional balance. Cognition was a significant predictor for gait speed only. A limitation of the study was that the authors did not include all possible factors in the model that may have influenced gait and balance in these individuals. Strength deficits in the hemiparetic lower extremity should be an important target for clinical interventions to improve function in people with chronic stroke. Lead author Dr. Patricia Kluding is assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Science in the School of Allied Health at the University of Kansas Medical Center in Kansas City, Kansas. Last this month, a case report and a perspective. First, the case report. Physical therapist management of acute and chronic low back pain using the World Health Organization's International Classification of Functioning, Disability, and Health by Dr. Sean Rundell, Dr. Todd Davenport, and Tracy Wagner. The World Health Organization's International Classification of Functioning, Disability, and Health ICF model was developed to describe, classify, and measure function in healthcare practice and research. Recently, this model has been promoted as a successor to the NAGI model by some authors in the physical therapy literature. However, conceptual work in demonstrating use of the ICF model in physical therapist management of individual patients remains sparse. The purpose of this case report series is to demonstrate the application of the ICF model in clinical reasoning and physical therapist management of acute and chronic low back pain. Two patients, one with acute low back pain and one with chronic low back pain, were treated pragmatically using the ICF model and other applicable models of clinical reasoning. Manual therapy, exercise, and education interventions were directed toward relevant body structure and function impairments, activity limitations, and contextual factors based on their hypothesized contribution to functioning and disability. Both patients demonstrated clinically significant improvements in measures of pain, disability, and psychosocial factors after three weeks and ten weeks of intervention, respectively. 
The World Health Organization's ICF model appears to provide an effective framework for physical therapists to better understand each person's experience with his or her disablement and assists in prioritizing treatment selection. The explicit acknowledgement of personal and environmental factors aids in addressing potential barriers. The ICF model integrates well with other models of practice, such as Sackett's Principles of Evidence-Based Practice, the Rehabilitation Cycle, and Edwards and colleagues' clinical reasoning model. Future research should examine outcomes associated with the use of the ICF model using adequately designed clinical trials. Lead author Dr. Sean Rundell is a physical therapist at Portland Sports Medicine and Spine Physical Therapy in Portland, Oregon. Advancements in Contemporary Physical Therapy Research Use of Mixed Methods Designs by Dr. Lauren Rauscher and Dr. Bruce Greenfield. The purpose of this article is to advocate for the use of mixed methods designs in contemporary physical therapist research. Mixed methods research is a design for collecting, analyzing, and mixing both quantitative and qualitative data in a single study or series of studies to both explain and explore specific research problems, thereby enriching the breadth and depth of understanding phenomena. These designs are particularly well-suited for physical therapist researchers to reveal the complexity of disablement, rehabilitation, and recovery processes. Although contextual factors influence a person's health condition and recovery, they remain empirically less understood and underexplored by physical therapist researchers. To address this gap, the authors describe various combinations of quantitative and qualitative methods and data within a single study or set of related studies and the decisions that underlie the uses of these combinations. They include examples from current physical therapist research and applications from the International Classification of Functioning Disability and Health, ICF model. They argue that the rigorous application of quantitative and qualitative methods and data can propel physical therapist research and practice forward by stimulating new research questions, creating a holistic understanding of patient injury and rehabilitation, and contributing to innovative complex treatment interventions. Lead author Dr. Lauren Rauscher is Assistant Professor of Sociology in the Department of Human Development at California State University, Long Beach, in Long Beach, California. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825. Thanks for listening.